Again, we have the honor and privilege before God to declare his truth, and we will do it from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. That is the place uh, which we will draw from it, uh, the wisdom from our Savior for our life. Uh, I want to read these verses in your hearing so you can read along with me. It'll uh, remind some of you. Uh, it'll uh, refresh your thinking and prepare you for the exposition of these uh, verses here in a few moments. I'll begin at verse 11 of the 19th chapter of Luke. Here are the verses. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then returned. And he called ten of his slaves, and gave them ten minas, and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. The uh, sermon title is the reward for faithfulness. Christians do not serve Jesus Christ for nothing. He has promised to recompense those who labor and serve on his behalf. Revelation 22:12, 12, uh, the conclusion of the apocalypse, our Lord says this, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to recompense to every man according to what he has done. Christians, therefore, take Jesus at his word. So we will not, we cannot, and do not, therefore, labor in vain. And that is really the thrust of the parable that I just read in your hearing. The parable of the minas, uh, the parable that is before us this morning. What is a parable? A parable is a word picture with a profound spiritual lesson. Jesus paints a picture for us, and in painting this picture with the words that he uses here, we have a picture of what spiritual life is like. He puts it in a way that we can comprehend the realities 
of eternal matters, the spiritual matters. But the occasion for this particular parable, the lesson that is learned from it is found in verse 11. Jesus was in the home of Zacchaeus and he was discussing salvation. And as he was there, uh, it was supposed, because he was, it says in verse 11, he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. As Bible teachers let us know that in Luke 9, 51 through Luke chapter 19, verse 44, uh, there is a travelogue. Jesus' itinerary is laid out. Jesus journeys from Jerusalem, uh, from where he was to Jerusalem. And this section has been designated by Bible students as the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus' journey to the capital city of, uh, of Israel was for the express purpose, as you know, dying a substitutionary death for sinners. He had told his disciples that on a number of occasions. You recall, as you read through the Gospels, he is telling them he's going to go to Jerusalem and the elders are going to arrest him and they're going to kill him and he will be raised the third day. This was told to them repeatedly, but uh, as they approached uh, Jerusalem, the, the thinking in their mind, like uh, the thinking in many Jews' minds, was that the uh, kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That is, an earthly kingdom, a visible kingdom, a tangible kingdom, a political kingdom with Messiah reigning as king. They, they wanted that, and the Old Testament teaches that, that there will be an earthly king, kingdom with a king who will reign. And so that was in the thinking of Jews, and can you imagine as they're getting closer and closer and to that place that, boy, this is in their thinking. But that aspect of the kingdom of God is coming, but not yet. Not yet. Not then. But the spiritual aspect of the kingdom of God was already present. Jesus taught this earlier. In Luke chapter 17, verse 21, in that passage as he's elaborating on the character and nature of the kingdom, he uses the word midst, M-I-D-S-T, midst. So the kingdom is in your midst. Literally, the word means inside, inside. Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was internal. It was not observable by outward signs as those people who were talking with him thought. No, no, the kingdom was present then, and it, but it was internal. Meaning this, it exists in the hearts of the redeemed. And the redeemed are in the kingdom by virtue of the new birth. So the present aspect of the kingdom is invisible. It's internal. And its occupants are subjects in the kingdom, subjects to the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're born again. Born again. That's how you get in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus told Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious leader, but he was outside the kingdom. He said, you must be born again. So it's in the invisible, tangible aspect of the kingdom is coming, for sure. But this parable is not addressing directly the coming of the kingdom as it will when Jesus returns, is really talk about what do you do in the meantime? What do you do until Jesus comes? What happens in the interim? 
while Jesus is away. And that's what the parable is talking about until he comes back. There is a time period between his first and second comings. What are we to do as believers? We're in that period of time. We're in what is called the church age right now. Jesus is going back to heaven, but he's going to come back from heaven. But during that interim, we're to live a certain way, and Jesus lays it out for us here. In fact, he, he talks about three categories of people in their response to him during this period of history. And we uh, could call them the foes, the faithful, and the faithless. <laughs> the foes... Uh, the faithful and the faithless. Jesus, in verse 12, he begins his parable by talking about a nobleman, a nobleman, um, a man of noble birth, an aristocrat. Uh, but this noble man here is really representative of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is going to go to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. The distant country. This particular detail here theologically corresponds to the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. He ascended back to the Father, his right hand. He was exalted there. He was coronated there. He is king. So that's what this distant country helps us understand. But not only that, it dispels the notion, notice distant country, it dispels the notion of um, immediacy of the kingdom coming. That his arrival will show up when Jesus and his disciples and the others who are following him arrive in Jerusalem. Well, as we think about this, we go to verse 14. We're talking about the foes. Jesus is a king. And verse 14 tells us, but his citizens hated him. He's going to receive a kingdom. And they hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. There's historical understanding or background here. You need to get this. Jesus' audience was familiar with it. The citizens that are referred to here in verse 14 uh, who protested were Jews. They protested the son of Herod the Great going to Rome to receive a kingdom, and that son was named Archelaus. They hated Archelaus. They hated him with reason. Rotten man, ruler. He, he wasn't good. They didn't want him. The Jews didn't want him reigning over them. And Jesus takes this historical fact that they're all familiar with, hearing this story and this, this aspect of the story, and he applies it to himself in relation to the citizens, the Jews, especially John 1.11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John chapter 15, verse 25, Jesus quotes a psalm, and he says there, they hated me without cause. This is a stunning reality. Jesus' foes hate him without a cause. They, they, he did nothing to generate that hatred. I mean, after all, look at the person he is. The fault was with them. It extends beyond the Jews. Jesus 
is hated by those beyond Jewish people. Everyone is under the sovereign rule of Jesus. That's why they're citizens. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 says this. Whether they accept, reject, or ignore him, they're under his sovereign rule. The world is his domain. He created it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all they that dwell therein, Psalm 24, it belongs to him. The world was made through him, and it's for him, Colossians 1, 16. All people, therefore, are his subjects. Keep that in mind. Everybody who draws breath on this planet is the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the right to rule over all humanity. The reality is he created every single human being. I mean, coming from Adam, all human beings are the result of his creative activity and power uh, when he spoke the world's world in existence and he and the Father and Holy Spirit created the first man. He has the right to rule over all citizens on the planet. But most, as you know, are in rebellion against him. And the foes of Jesus didn't stop in the first century. From generation to generation to generation, there are foes, those who are his enemies. They do not want him to rule over them. They do not want him to be king. You know, back to the historical point, Archelaus, though the Jews protested, he did become king. <laughs> didn't stop him. Jesus' enemies, likewise, will be unsuccessful in stopping him from being king. The fact is, they're not going to be able to stop what the Father has determined. There's a lovely part of a psalm. Psalm 2 is wonderful. It talks about this. Man wants to throw off uh, the fetters, the cords. They, they don't want the authority, the sovereignty of God and his Son. And in Psalm 2, verse 8, it says this, God the Father says to his son, the Messiah King, these words, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. God the Son, God incarnate. He is the Son of God, his deity, and then the Father says, I'm going to give you the entire globe. This prophecy will be fulfilled, it will be realized when Jesus returns. Jesus' enemies will understand that. <laughs> They'll understand it in a way uh, that's acutely painful for them forever. So we talk about his foes when he returns and he will address them. Verse 27 of this, this parable it says this, but these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Jesus is going to return, as it says in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. And upon his return, he will address his enemies by judging them and destroying them. He will deal with them. Those are the foes. This category of people who uh, hate Jesus. They don't want his rulership over their lives. There's another group, the faithful. 
the faithful. Back in verse 13, as the nobleman of Christ is about to go on a, to a distant country, he's going against king, kingdom, he is, Jesus is going back to heaven, and what he pictures here, verse 13, he called his slaves, ten of them, and gave them ten minas, and said, do business with this until I come. Now, slaves, I, I know, and I've said this before, and I'll probably say it <laughs> again, um, it, it has, um, in for some of us, historical uh, connotation that is not pl pleasant, but that's the first, this is the first century. Understand what a slave then was a competent individual. He was entrusted with a, ma a master's household or estate, and he was exercised proper and profitable management of it on the master's behalf while the master was away. You see Jesus used this image uh, in other parables. And so this, this slave was someone skilled and knew how to manage things. He was, entr he was entrusted with this responsibility by uh, the owner. So he calls his ten slaves to him, and he gives them a mina, a Greek coin worth a hundred drachmas. It's really just boiled down to uh, three months' wages. And the, the mina, do understand this parable is really not about money. Money is used to represent opportunity, privilege, gifts, responsibility. That's what the mina represents. That's what it represents to us. And Jesus says here, do business with this until I come. First thing you need to understand when Jesus says, says this, it's an imperative. We are to pursue Christ and his kingdom's interest. That's what we do with our opportunity, with our gifts, with our responsibility, with our privilege. All of that, we are to take that and pursue Christ's interest. You notice these slaves were to serve him. They were to take his mina and do business with it. In other words, make a profit with his money. They were told by him to serve his purpose. That's what we do. While we're waiting for Jesus to come, we're to live here in this particular moment of our life, and that's what Christians are to do. We're to serve his purpose. Here in the church age, as I said earlier, this is a church age is bracketed by the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And we're to do it lifelong until life ends or Christ comes, whichever is first. That is what we're to do. We don't retire from it. You can retire from a job and get a golden watch or whatever. They perhaps don't give those. Now, they give you severance, I guess, or whatever they give you. You can retire from your job, but you never retire from serving Christ. Never. You may not be able to serve him as you once did, but we're to continue to serve him, advance his interest, no matter what the circumstance. Whatever the opportunity is, serve him. You should gift you all of that for him. That's what we're to do. So it gives to these men his, these, a mina each. 
Now, verse 15. He returned. (laughs) As he said he would. After receiving the kingdom. The king has come. In order that those, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called him so that he might know what business they had done. It's time for accountability. Now, I think it's important for us to understand here, and this is how it seems to me. It's, there will be accountability for each of us to our Lord. It will be personal, face-to-face. We will give an account to him for what we did with our opportunities, our privileges, our gifts, all of that that he gave us during our Christian life. But you need to also understand something. The one we're going to be face-to-face with is the one who loves us, who sacrifices life for us. We're going to look into the face of the one who has loved us eternally, who gave us an opportunity to serve him, saved us and brought us into his kingdom, and says, serve me, advance my interests. And coming to give account, the purpose is that he might reward us, rewarding us for what we did. That, that's amazing. He says, I want to reward you for your service. That's what's going on here. The first slave, verse 16, comes to the master of Christ. Your mina has made ten minas more. You notice how he words it, verse 16. The first slave indirectly credits Christ for the productivity he achieved. Your mina has made ten minas more. He credits Christ, and rightly so, for without Christ's power and providence, he nor we could be successful in our spiritual endeavors. We offer our faithfulness. He supplies the grace. He supplies the power. He arranges situations. I'm going to tell you something happened to me. I, was, I debated whether I was going to tell you this story or not. I was in line at the store yesterday, and I'm behind an older man. Well, he appeared older to me, you know. And he had his back to me, and I didn't say anything. I'm just standing there. He turns around and says, ask me how I am. I, I said, I'm, I'm fine. He said, well, how are you? And he said, I'm vertical. And he says, better than the alternative. And I said, but there is a better alternative. See, this is my opportunity. See, I've been preparing this sermon, you know. <laughs> this is my opportunity. I say, heaven's a better one. Better alternative. And he has said some few other things to me. I don't want to share that right now. My point is, opportunities like that will come. I got to tell him about who God is who Christ is, because he had, uh, I'll expand a little bit, he had a problem with something that was said by a minister umpteen years ago. And I said, no, no, look at what the Bible says, what Jesus says. And I said, that was an opportunity the Lord gave me. I didn't seek it out. This man turns and looks at me and wants to engage me in a conversation. 
if I didn't know how God providentially works in human, I thought, boy, that's just weird. I'm minding my own business. It's not weird. Our job is just be faithful. It's how we do it. You notice something here in verse 17. After what this man did, he made this tremendous profit. Ten more minus a thousand percent. Daryl Box says in that day that was not unusual for that kind of a return. And Jesus says in verse 17, you've been faithful in a very little thing in terms of scale. A minor, very little thing. But notice, he rewards him with authority over ten cities. What? That's out of proportion to what he has done. He's multiplied the minus ten, but he, he's given authority over ten cities. This is out of proportion to what he's done. Authority over cities. Now, notice the king has come. Jesus is going to rule over everything. But what, what he is saying here, you will rule under my authority. A slave gets to rule. That's what he is teaching us. Our life here, our service here, will impact our future. We will rule under him in his kingdom. The second slave comes and he presents what he did. Five minus. He built five cities. Notice something in this parable. It's inescapable. First thing the Lord does, he praises them for their faithfulness. Well done, good slave. Jesus is going to tell us that. Can you imagine hearing that in your ears from the lips of the Lord? Well done, good slave. If he says it's well done, it's well done. Some people can tell you something's good, and you know, I don't know about that. But when Jesus tells you it's well done, it's well done. So he praised them. Then he promoted them. Promoted them to be vice regents under him in his kingdom. I believe the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. Even, in fact, in eternity, we're going to serve the Lord. And our service, uh, the extent of it, the glory of how we can glorify him, all of that is predicated on how, we, how faithful we are here. Now, you might wonder, why is there a difference? Each man got a minor, right? The first man who had ten minors... Uh, made them, he had a minor. The second man, a minor, he made five. Why the difference in production? Both men are faithful. They were both praised and promoted by our Lord. So the faithful is not an issue. So how is there a difference? Perhaps here are two options that we can consider. First, I would say the option is there are degrees of faithfulness. 
degrees of faithfulness. Perhaps we can understand this with the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 23. You notice Jesus tells that parable, he talks about some produce fruit a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Different levels of degrees of fruitfulness. Christians maybe are not equally faithful. All faithful, but not equally so. There's another option that could explain the difference between these two and generally among Christians. S perhaps the second man is some Christians do not have um, the same opportunities, same gifts, same level of responsibility, same outcomes. And I, I like that option as well because I can envision and I know there are some Christians some places who do not have the same opportunities that other Christians have in other places. They don't have the same privileges. I think about somebody who's illiterate who can't re read the Bible. I think about back during times of uh, U.S. slavery, there were Christians there. They didn't have the opportunities like we have. They, they, they wouldn't have known what it was like to have all the Bible uh, translations and in fact they couldn't read have what we have there are people like that around the world who don't have access to what we have don't have the opportunities that we have but the thing that Jesus is looking at is faithfulness faithfulness so the rewards for faithfulness will be greater opportunities and responsibilities as I mentioned, the millennial and heavenly kingdoms, the faithful, the faithful. There's a third category of people uh, that we need to address that Jesus does here, verses 26 through uh, 20 through 26, the faithless, the faithless. Verse 20, there's that word another. Uh, and it's important to know what another translates. It's not the Greek term alos, which means uh, another of the same kind. It's a Greek term, heteros, another of a different kind. We get our words heterodox, heterosexual, uh, from this term heteros in the Greek. Indeed, he is another of a different kind. He is a slave, but he's a different kind of slave. Let me just say it now. This man is a professing Christian. He is not a real one. There have been people who try to excuse people who have no interest in Christ, no interest in the word of God, who have no interest in his kingdom, no interest in holy living. They say, well, he's a carnal Christian. I heard that growing up. Oh, he's just carnal. Hmm. No, he's just not saved. A carnal Christian or a fleshly Christian, one um, who they say is living in a state of sinfulness. You know, there's even one, in, one individual um, who, who said you can be a, an unbelieving believer. Stop believing. Yes, still saved. That's nuts. That's a theological term, by the way. <laughs> you can't. True Christians will continue to believe. This man, notice verse 20, he hid the miner, just put it away in a handkerchief. Jesus didn't tell him to do that. 
First thing we learn about this man, he did not obey Christ's command given to him in verse 13. Christ said, do business with this till I come. What did he, this guy do? He hid it. He put it in a handkerchief. This slave had no interest in Christ's kingdom. His concern was for himself and his will. He was doing his thing, put opportunities, privileges, all that aside. Verse 21, then he goes on to excuse himself. Oh, I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He possessed a false view of Christ. He impugned his character. An exacting man, what that means is he's harsh, he's strict and unfair. That's what he says about the king, about Christ. None of that's true. fact, you see further, notice what it says, what you did not lay down and you take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. In other words, he is saying, you take what doesn't belong to you. You uh, go to some man's field and take his crops. It didn't belong to you, it belonged to him. He called, he's accusing him of being a thief. Wow, that's blasphemous. This man did not love Christ, did not honor Christ, did not respect him. This man, that's why I say he's a professor, uh, but not a possessor of genuine faith. Jesus says, uh, verse 22, by your own words, I'll judge you or condemn you, is the word condemn. You worthless slave. Worthless there, uh, the word is evil in the Greek evil slave. Jesus wouldn't call one of his own evil. He is evil here. So he says, did you not know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why didn't you put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected with interest. This man's excuse was lame. It didn't hold water. And Jesus takes retribution on this slave. That's why in verse 24 he says, Take the miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. And they protest. Naturally, they say, What? Wait, wait. This guy already has ten. Why give it to him? I think what the deal is, this illustrates the generosity, the grace of Christ. Man already has ten miners. Christ said, Give it to him. First of all, do understand, whatever we receive as reward, it's by grace. It's all grace. Second, Christ is gracious. It's the nature of his grace, the nature of God's grace. He lavishes it on us. Another thing is, this man would use it. He's already demonstrated his faithfulness. So they strip the man, uh, this faithless one. Jesus says, I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. You, you say, well, what does that mean? No more opportunities for him. The position he might have aspired to, gone. It's all done in the judgment. Christ judges him. 
I've stated it before, and I'm going to state it one more time, that this man did not have a relationship with Christ. He was not born again. He would not enter the kingdom, participate in the kingdom. This slave only appeared to be in Christ. He only appeared to be a branch in the vine, but he did not bear fruit, John 15, too. He was not genuine. He will experience separation from Christ forever. So we have uh, three categories of people. And when Jesus returns, he will deal with three groups of people represented here in this parable. Now the glorious reality is for Christians the f who are faithful, the joy for them is this. They have a glorious future ahead of them. A glorious future. Our future has already been delineated for us. We know what the outcome of our life of service to Christ is going to mean for us. Our destiny is sure we're going to heaven, but also we're going to have responsibilities, privileges, I think really beyond anything we can really comprehend in terms of the magnitude and the scope to serve Christ. So think about that. We live our lives here, we serve Christ here, and it seems to the world like that's no, it's no big deal, but it's a big deal to Christ. And we will enjoy his service and serving him forever and ever. That's the reward that we're headed to. And I, I challenge you to keep that in mind. Because it's easy to allow the world to make us think that, boy, we got to do this, got to do that. No, 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 no. Keep in mind, serving Christ ultimately counts. So you want to be faithful to him, knowing he's going to reward you in ways beyond your ability to comprehend for his glory and our joy. In fact, in the parable of the talents, he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. We will have joy, profound joy, for serving him. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the reality of these truths. We thank you that uh, what believers do in this life of Christ will prove to be what ultimately matters. Help, help us understand these truths and live them out. Encourage us, move us along the path of service for you, reminding us of what you have in store for us when you come, Lord. We pray these things now in the name of Christ and for your glory. Amen. We are glad you are here with us this morning. If you're not a Christian, I'll tell you what, you don't want to be a foe of Christ. The wrong, wrong, wrong place to be spiritually. Um, you don't want to be a foe Christian, fake Christian. Wrong place to be. You want to be for real. And if you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to do that. You need to say, Lord, you're king you're the Lord, and I am going to surrender my life to you, for you died for sinners. You were buried. You were raised from the dead. You are the Lord, and I want to live for you. I'm turning from my sin, and I'm going to live for you by your grace and glory. Turn your life over to Christ. You'll have a future 
of untold joy and glory. Come to the Savior today while you have the opportunity, while you're alive, while you hear the word of God as you sense your need for Christ. Don't turn away from him. Turn to him. We invite you to do that. And we invite you to return next Sunday. We'll be here again to open the word of God and share from it the truths that are strengthening and liberating for the child of God. So until then, may the Lord keep you and bless you.